0: Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Hallie Sutton on the show with me today. She has an amazing debut novel. It's called The Lady Upstairs. And if you are a thriller lover or crime fiction lover or noir lover like I am, this is a must have for your fall reading list. And it needs to be beside your bed. And it needs to be the last thing that you read every night until you finish this book. Um, Welcome to the show, Hallie.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
0: I'm excited to have you. Um, Hallie, for the last 1000 episodes, we have began with the same question. And that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller?
1: That is a really good question. So when I was a kid, my parents had a job where they would travel across the the United States, um, doing math workshops for teachers. And so I would travel with them a lot. And so I could be a little lonely on the road, um, as a kid. So books were really kind of like my best friends. Characters felt very, very real to me. So I think the moment I knew I was destined to be a writer was when I was writing letters to my favorite character, Sally Lockhart of the Philip Pullman, Ruby in the Smoke series. (laughs) and uh, I was telling her about my life because she was so real to me that I wanted her to see me as a real person. And I, you know, I knew she was fictional. We weren't, I wasn't like delusional, but it just, I wanted to connect with her in the way that um, she was connecting with me. And so I think that was kind of the first pretty, pretty good inkling that this was where I was headed.
0: (laughs) That's, uh, that's amazing. um, That a character has that sort of impact on you that, that you um you know are all in and and like you said not that you are delusional but the <laughs> these characters do become larger than life to us um mm-hmm. now as as having coming from a family where your parents were were math teachers in in essence and in and teaching people how to teach math um did did any uh, did you get any encouragement from your parents did they recognize this thing in you and that you were a lover of words and stories
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think they were thrilled. You know, they're both big readers. So um, I think that's where my love of reading was first fostered was by my parents and how much they read and how much they read to me. Um, And so I think they were very, very excited to see that pop up in me early and definitely helped me nurture it.
0: Did you inherit the analytical side from your parents?
1: (laughs) Sadly, no. (laughs) (laughs) Me
0: either. Don't feel bad. Oh, man. (laughs) <laughs> um did uh, so at what point did you realize that this was something that you wanted to do? i I, I understand your connection with stories and and that this was uh, a desire in you. But when did it become a reality to you? like this is something I could study and this is something that I could pursue?
1: yeah, I would say pretty early, um. For my undergraduate, I studied creative writing at um, UC Santa Cruz. And so I knew that there were kind of these pathways to at least studying in school. Um, I would say that it wasn't until um, probably my mid twenties that I really kind of made a decision for myself that like I, what I wanted above all else was really just to write books and that I really did want to be published, but either way, what I wanted was to write books. And that if that's, I think that's a thing that a lot of us who are writers, you have this feeling of like, I'm going to write one day, but that one day you have to actually make it happen. So I would say it was somewhere around my early to mid twenties. I was like, this book is no book that I want to write is going to write itself. So I have to actually figure out how I'm going to write a book and figure out the path forward for that.
0: So you... In your education, you pursued writing, you pursued creative writing. This was something, you know, a lot of people uh, feel like they have a book in them or, you know, mm-hmm. more than that. And uh, they they get um, some people would say sidetracked with life. Um, you know, we we follow different paths. Um, I, I call it gaining life experience uh-huh. you know, through various means. Um, did, uh, what, what did you do up until that mid twenties point? What were you doing to gain life experience?
1: You know, uh, I doing what I'm still doing, which is I actually work for a publishing company in my day job. Um, I, when I first started, I was kind of in the editorial book side for higher education, um, best practice books. Uh, and now I work for, um, now I work for higher education journals. So kind of sticking in that education vein. Um, but, but I would say some of the life experience that I had to do, you know, I tried to make travel a big part of my life. I think the more of the world that you can see and the more people you can see, all of that just makes you a better writer because it's a better understanding of what's possible, what's out there.
0: And, and we're all just telling, uh, you know, different takes on the human condition that, right. you know, genre is just, Window dressing, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if you will, but we're we're telling stories about the human condition, and Absolutely. the more humans you can meet in different settings, uh, the the better, the, the wider your palette is going to be. Absolutely. So, uh, so Hallie, what, uh, where did your love of noir come from? Um, and 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 then you know, what about the the idea of the femme fatale? Mm-hmm. Um, because this has been a, uh, a has become a cliche in a lot of ways. Um, So first off, where does your love of noir come from?
1: My love of noir comes from, uh, you know, I've always loved noir film, um, especially kind of neo-noir was my first kind of bridge into it. Seeing movies like Body Heat uh, is one of my favorite movies of all time. Chinatown. um, And then I think that there's so much you know, when I, when I've been talking about this book, there's a lot of people in my life or people I know who are like, I don't really know what noir is, but the fact of the matter is noir kind of has seeped into so many different things that you're actually probably very familiar with it. Even if you're not familiar with the genre specifically, even if you can't rattle off your favorite, you know, Raymond Chandler novel or your favorite screenplay. Um, but just that kind of uh, dark aesthetic and that kind of rhythm to things that has seeped into a bunch of different things, whether it's Jessica Jones or, you know, a bunch of more contemporary uh, contemporary film and TV and books even. Um, so my love of that was fostered pretty early. And then in terms of the femme fatale, you know, that was kind of felt like, um the core of the story a little bit which was that I had this idea for this strong female character and I had her voice in my head pretty early which is my main character Joe who works for the agency for the lady upstairs blackmailing these kind of bad terrible men um and this is
0: an awesome (laughs) twist by the way
1: (laughs) Thank you. Um, And so I wanted to so I had this strong voice in my head and I needed a story for her to go into. And when I moved to Los Angeles, I was like, oh, you know, Los Angeles has this long, like, very deep history with both noir film and TV shows and uh, literature. And so it seemed to me like a really natural entry point, both for me to understand the city and then also for the novel. And when I thought of that, I thought about What if you took, like you said, the the femme fatale character is kind of this cliché and this kind of well-known trope. And she's like the most fabulous part of every noir film there's ever been. She's got the best lines. She's got the best wardrobe. She's often a huge draw for this genre. But she's also kind of this stock character. And so I wanted to take her and make her someone very real. And I also wanted to make the work that she did very real. Like the femme fatale traditionally is kind of this you know, character who symbolizes dangerous desire or this, you know, if you're if you're going to the like anthropological roots of it, it's this projection of uh, male fear post-World War II when women are entering the workforce and have more agency. And that's kind of when she pops up as this really dangerous character. But I wanted her to be like actually dangerous, like pragmatically dangerous. Like if she had a business card, it would say, I destroy men. And so that kind of piece of it was the other missing piece of the book where once I had those things kind of together, that was how I how I had a plot.
0: <laughs> you, you know, when you when you mentioned the the things that uh, that we experience with the femme fatale and we understand that when she shows up, her character arc and her plot arc, it, we kind of know where this is going. Yes. Um, but you took the best parts of that character and the dangerous parts of that character and completely turned it on its head. Um, when you first had the idea for this, um how did you start kind of going through that and 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 picking apart the things that that everyone knows and and finding ways to do it differently?
1: Yeah, so uh, yeah, uh, it was kind of a very deliberate process of kind of um steeping myself in noir so that i could really understand the tropes and that there are certain things you know there's certain very specific things if you look at um noir films oftentimes the first time she appears she's wearing white or she has famously in double indemnity she has an anklet which i kind of pay homage to in one of the scenes that you know a woman wearing an anklet is up to no good and um (laughs) I wanted to take some of these very like literal markers of noir and find ways to incorporate them, but also incorporate them in a way that like Joe is in on the joke, you know, she kind of, she knows what she's doing and she knows that she's creating this illusion that isn't necessarily who she is underneath, but she's playing this role of the femme fatale, but it's, it's the blurred lines between when does the role become real? You know, when does, when does what you do every day become who you are? And that's what I kind of wanted to explore with that by kind of um, blowing up some of those really familiar noir tropes.
0: There, there's been lots of noir stories that take place in Los Angeles, as mm-hmm. you um, alluded to, um, and it it in a lot of ways has kind of become part of the genre. Um, but some great noir stories really play off of the idea that Los Angeles is not all the glitz and glamour of Hollywood and when you're not from there and you don't live there it's easy to look out west and see this this shiny you know pot of gold kind of uh kind of situation and if you've ever read a bosch novel you know that there's there's lots of gritty underbelly in there you know speaking of great noirish um mm-hmm. tales um but you know in in your book L- LA becomes uh, kind of one of the characters and what tell me a little bit about uh Taking this setting and 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 really portraying it in a complex uh, way that uh, that makes us stop and think.
1: Well, thank you for that. That's very kind of you. Um, that's what I was hoping for. Uh, I would say so. I'm not from L.A. Uh, I moved here five years ago for grad school. Um And one of the things that became apparent to me when I did move here is that there are kind of two different versions of LA. There's LA, that's like a very real city where people live and make their homes and have their lives. Um, And then there's LA, the mythological city, which is this, like you said, this Hollywood, this glitz and glamour, the palm trees, the sunshine, the beach, you know. Um, And I was very interested in kind of toggling between those two spaces. So in the book, I wanted it to have very real settings in LA, like Joe's office, the lady upstairs's office is set in Koreatown. Joe herself lives in a little part of uh, LA called Playa del Rey, which is where I live, which is a part of Los Angeles. I'm not sure I've ever seen in fiction before. So I wanted it to be set in these very real places, but I also wanted it to kind of explore what is LA the mythology and how do people understand it? It's kind of this mirage city where you can um, almost will something artificial into becoming real if you believe it long enough.
0: A hitman with a conscience. Ian Bragg is paid to kill people. Only bad people and not many, but for a great deal of money. Case the target. Make the hit. Move on. Until he meets the woman with sparkling green eyes who changes everything. A few pre-readers had this to say about Ian Bragg. Mark Dawson, million-selling thriller author, says a rip-roaring ride from start to breathless finish. Craig Martell hit a home run with the operator, the taut, lean prose and lightning-fast pace make this a page-turner without sacrificing an ounce of story or depth. You'll find yourself rooting for the hitman main character as he faces the toughest decision of his career. The Operator is the start of a new thriller series I expect to see burning up bestseller list for years to come, says A.C. Fuller, author of The Crime Beat and Alex Vane Media Thrillers suave romantic and lethal ian bragg is everything you want in a highly paid assassin can't wait to ride this train says james blatch self-publishing formula it's been a long time since i fell this hard in love with a book a very long time author of women of wine county romantic suspense terry wells brown says grab this book from craig martell the operator Both Barrels Publishing is the brainchild of successful indie author James P. Sumner. He has self-published over 15 titles in the last five years and has over 800,000 downloads so far in his career, meaning he has a wealth of knowledge and experience to share with the indie publishing community. Knowing the struggles of the modern-day indie author as well as he does, he wanted to create a platform that would allow writers of any level— to learn the ropes, navigate the pitfalls, and produce a professional novel without wasting time or money in the process. Both Barrels Publishing is the perfect one-stop shop for any indie author, combining James's expertise with his own team of editors and designers so you can help your novel realize its full potential and learn how to publish yourself. The purpose of Both Barrels Publishing is to help indie authors get their novels ready for publication without all the stress, hassle, and unnecessary expense. We want to make your lives easier, which is why we're giving you access to a top-notch team to publish your novels, along with a generous discount on their services. You can also work one-on-one with James to learn the intricacies of self-publishing. No hidden costs, no false promises. We simply want you to publish the best version of your novel. BothBarrelsPublishing.com Tell me a little bit about Joe. Um, she, you know, steps into the, the shoes of an archetypal um, sort of character, um, but we learn quickly that she's she's more uh, than that. Uh, as you start started envisioning uh, this femme fatale and, and how you would do that, how did Joe start taking shape?
1: Yeah. So I had Joe's voice in my head very early and it was a very specific voice that this kind of sharp, sarcastic, flinty, hard drinking, you know, kind of very prototypical noir and prototypical like, uh, femme fatale character, you know, this kind of stock character of, um, always has a quip is never really that ruffled by anything. So that was kind of the first layer of Joe, but I don't think that that's a very interesting character to stay with for 300 pages. I think you have to have something underneath that. So when I started asking myself kind of what was underneath that, what was she hiding behind this veneer of being tough and cool and, you know, never, never really emotionally affected by anything. And it turned out she had this massive heart underneath. And I thought that was really interesting um, for me as a writer to kind of toggle between those two spaces of this, you know, 90% of the time she's cool as a cucumber, but then there's this kind of um, emotion and this hot bloodedness that seeps out. And as the novel kind of unfolds, she's less and less able to contain that.
0: So Hallie, um, when did you start working on this novel? Because I I understand that the novel has had a very interesting history from, uh, you know, through publication. When did you get started on it?
1: So I started working on this novel in 2015, 2016, um, and I wrote the first draft of it when I was in grad school and uh, ended up needing, started trying to kind of query that draft to agents. um, And wasn't really getting a lot of traction. I ended up getting this extremely nice rejection from the woman who is now my agent, where she sent like eight pages of feedback, or I'm sorry, eight paragraphs of feedback, basically like what she liked, what she thought needed work. And it was such a nice lifeline in the dark because when you're querying, it just, there's so much that's like not right for me, which is great and totally valid, but it doesn't actually there's nothing I can change about the book based on that. So to have somebody take the time to really tell me where she thought the book needed work was like this unbelievable gift, um, even when she was passing on the novel. So that kind of let me know that there was a lot of work I still needed to do on the book. And that led me to Pitch Wars, which um, if you're not familiar, is this online mentoring program that happens once a year, pairing established writers with up and coming writers who are trying to sign with an agent and have like a complete first draft of a novel that needs work. And in the three months that you're working on the novel with your mentor, if you get picked, you basically, it's like a marathon slash sprint to see how much you can do in that time before an agent showcase. So when I was in Pitch Wars, which was 2018, um i was working with a writer named lane fargo who is a feminist thriller writer who has written the books temper and they never learn and she's a great writer and a great plotter and she basically her big notes were um you've got this great concept you've got this great voice i like your writing a lot your plot doesn't build the way it should and your midpoints in the wrong place and i remember being like yes great concrete feedback so helpful i don't know what a midpoint is so we started there <laughs> And so she really kind of um, revolutionized the way that I plot novels and basically helped me kind of build a build a plot framework for The Lady Upstairs.
0: Now, that's that's a great uh, point that you bring up. So my my question first is, are you a are you a (laughs) panther?
1: I am at heart a panther who is trying to see the light and become a plotter. Um, For my second book, I have a pretty detailed um, like Six or seven page synopsis of where I think the novel is going to go, and I think it's really helpful to have kind of that like this is the midpoint, this is the falling action, this is the resolution, but I'm also trying to give myself a little bit of space to change as I get into the writing of it because um for me if i if I know exactly what's going to happen, it's not as interesting
0: so i I am like you at heart i I love to to just sit down and write and I'm, I've always got story ideas going and it's not like, you know, that that the writer has nothing in mind and she just sits down and starts right. writing. Um, right. Usually there the plotting's going on in your head. Mm-hmm. Um so some of the some of the ideas about plotters versus pantsers is is kind of weird. Um but a lot of people will get to the point where you did, where you have a finished novel and then you start looking at it and you might start uh looking at structure. And then dismantling the thing that you just wrote to get it in better order or, mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. What was your process like for like you said she said the midpoint's in the wrong place and you're like what's a midpoint? <laughs> yeah. um, I, uh, what was your revision process like?
1: Um, so Lane, the first thing that she did was she had me read the book "Save the Cat Writes a Novel," and um, we basically used that plot framework, which is twenty-two beats. Um, and we put it over, I put it basically like laid it over my current, the novel that I had at that point and said, okay, this is where the midpoint should be. Here's what actually happens. And it was so useful to kind of have this very specific framework where I could point to and say, this is, this is why my resolution isn't hitting harder. It's because this thing isn't, you know, hitting the right tent pole essentially. Um, and I've used that trying to go forward. Two for my second novel. Um, that's been how I've been kind of outlining a little bit in the way that I am. But I, I do think that there's something really helpful about already having kind of a draft of a novel and putting that over because it was very easy kind of immediately to see where my story was lacking structure.
0: Did did the novel in in the heart of the novel, did it change much in those like like when when you started getting that feedback and they got helpful feedback, um you know, what were, what were some of the differences in that early draft and what we have now? And you don't have to be specific, but you know what I'm asking.
1: Yeah, I do. Um, yeah, I would say, uh, I mean, so going back to the note about the midpoint. So in, in the middle of the novel, um, there is a big event, which I won't be too specific about, but it takes the novel in kind of a darker turn. And that event, um, in the very first iteration of the book. So now it happens almost exactly 50% of the way through. Um, the first time I wrote the book, it probably happened like 20 to 25% of the way through. So it was just kind of too, um, too much of a big thing to happen too early. You kind of had nowhere to go. It kind of, the plot engine kind of sputtered out after that. So that was one of the biggest things. Um, I would say it also, there's a character in the novel, um, Ellen and she is the woman that Joe has uh hired to seduce this um she's hired and trained to seduce this lecherous producer this kind of notorious casting couch king when the book opens. And Ellen is kind of the bottom of the pyramid in terms of the scheme that they're running. And she is very annoying to Joe for a variety of reasons, including that she's kind of having these conscience and moral qualms about what it is that they're doing, blackmailing these men. And she's kind of decided she doesn't really want to do it anymore. It doesn't feel good to her. It's not, not what she wants to be involved in. And, um, her role in the novel got really expanded in, in the revision. And now she's actually one of my favorite characters and partially because she's seen through Joe's eyes and Joe just finds her very irritating, which was really fun to write for me. <laughs> um, but I, I do think that it it's a stronger book because Ellen's in it more.
0: So we, we've kind of talked around this for a minute, but, um, so what Joe and, and her group um, do is they, they target men That are that are not good people, but then they do worse things to them. Um, Where did this idea come from of of kind of this underground, um, you know, payback system?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it really did come from the idea of the femme fatale a little bit. This like man eating, life destroying woman who has this power to really take down men, which you know is a very figurative character in a lot of noir i mean the actions that she causes like take double indemnity for example where she's kind of driving the action towards killing her husband spoiler alert for a book that's 70 years old um <laughs> but she i wanted it to be uh something that was not just that she not just that she was um this kind of bystander or an accomplice, or that she was the mastermind behind it, but that this was actually what she did. So that idea came from essentially noir. And then some of the research that I did around that was, uh, about kind of sex work because that's essentially what they're engaging in. And then also I found this really interesting agency in China, where if a woman suspects that her husband is being unfaithful, she can hire this agency who will find out if it's true. And if it is true, they will find some basically distraction for the woman that the husband is spending time with, whether that's a different boyfriend or a job in a different city or, you know, a hobby that consumes all of her time. They find a way to basically, um, remove that woman from the equation without it being as, that removed from the equation sounds like mafia speak for you know, like right. we bumped her off, but like they basically find a way to distract her. And that's not you know necessarily exactly what my characters are doing, but that agency in particular felt like it had a lot in common, kind of with that sort of like underground work. And so um that was something that I kind of looked to as an example of a way that something like this might function in the world.
0: Where did the character of the lady upstairs come from and and what point uh, does she serve to this? grand story
1: um she kind of came from i wanted to it's the the organization the lady upstairs runs is kind of like a multi-level marketing scheme and a little bit um but it's also a little bit like uh the mafia kind of um and i have long loved you know mafia narratives uh godfather goodfellas all the all the classics but i wanted to make the kind of the crime boss at the top a woman and I wanted her to um, be kind of shrouded in mystery and have created this kind of separate identity for herself. This, the lady, as the lady upstairs. And when the book opens, Joe doesn't know who it is. She has a few theories. She thinks she's kind of a Hollywood power player. Um, But I wanted her to be this character who's almost like a mirage in the same way that so much of LA is like a mirage. When, uh,
0: one of the aspects of of the femme fatal that that we talked about earlier is um, that we we kind of understand the role that she typically plays in a story like this. Mm. Um, talk a little bit about, if you don't mind, um, the idea of likable characters and what makes a character likable? what because it, these characters are are anything, if not imperfect um but imperfect does not necessarily mean unlikable um how do you how do you you know pull out someone's flaws and and put them on you know on display yet still build uh, a rapport with the reader
1: I think that's a really good question and I um You know, I think the problem with the question of likability is that it presumes that there is something that is likable, that there is some universal standard of likability. And I just, I don't think that there is, but I think, um, for me being able to, you know, a lot of Joe's actions are pretty amoral and she is definitely doesn't really care about the conventional niceties that a woman is supposed to kind of align herself with. But, uh, I think the, Hoping, I was hoping that the ways in which she would connect with the reader would be kind of the flashes of vulnerability that she does show, particularly in her relationships with Lou and also with Jackal, um, who is they're both people who work for the lady upstairs as well. And Lou is her best friend, and Robert Jackal is her kind of sometime paramour. Um, So the kind of flashes of vulnerability there, and then also her sense of humor. I think if you can make people laugh or entertain them in that way, they're willing to give you a lot of latitude.
0: So now that this book is out and uh, and everyone has it in their hands now, um, you have uh, turned your sights toward book two and, mm-hmm. uh, and you alluded to it earlier. Um, w- where does the uh, the creative process find you now, now that this book is out and and you can breathe again and, mm-hmm. you know, these the slate is clean?
1: Yes. Um. So I'm still pretty early days with book two. Um, but it is another feminist noir set in Los Angeles. And it's about a woman who runs a murder bus tour, which is like a very real industry here in LA. Um, and one day on her murder bus tour, she finds an actual dead body. And the mystery around the dead body is also somehow connected to the unsolved murder of her sister 20 years before.
0: Take my money. (laughs) That's, that sounds amazing. That's going to be Um, Hallie, this has been so much fun talking. The new book is out and available everywhere now. Um, it's the lady upstairs. We're going to put links to it in the show notes to make it easy for people to find. Um, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you're doing, where can they find you online?
1: They can find me on Twitter at Hallie underscore Sutton or on Instagram at Hallie Sutton 25. Um, Or you can also sign up for my author newsletter, which um, I promise is not actually mostly author promotion. It's usually about, you know, the great crime podcasts I'm listening to, the great crime novels I've read, you know, different noir trivia or articles, like things that I just am excited to share about um, all things crime.
0: Excellent. The Lady Upstairs, available everywhere now in Kindle edition, uh, paperback, audiobook, however you uh, like to consume books, you can grab it that way. Hallie, this has been so much fun talking. Thank you for taking time to come on the show.
1: This was so wonderful. Thank you so much for having me.
0: On an isolated human planet called Phoenix, outside the Galactic Gate Network, a royal empire teeters on the brink of revolution the new emperor is weak, the old guard seeks power, and a hidden slave cabal manipulates the great and small houses alike. None of this concerns Simeon Brazhnev, newly appointed steward to one of the most powerful heiresses on the planet. Happy to let the royals play their age-old game of catch the crown, Simeon is more concerned with balancing his mistress's books than worrying about affairs of state. But when Simeon discovers evidence of sedition at the highest levels of government buried deep within her finances, he realizes her great peril. Though a slave, he finds himself trapped in political intrigue, desperate to protect his mistress from the royals who would see her dead and the slave rebels who would make her their pawn. Agonized by the choice of turning her over to the authorities or protecting her secrets, Simeon decides to keep faith with his sovereign over his larger duty, thus flinging himself into a world of power, plot, and assassination. If he fails, they both die, and with them the chance at freedom for Simeon's enslaved race. Set in the Salvage Title universe, Salvage Mind is the first of three novels in a new breakout series. Available in ebook format and paperback, grab your copy today. Salvage Mind by David Allen Jones. Bone Thief john driscoll book one by thomas o'callahan a sociopathic killer is using the internet to lure seemingly random women to their gruesome deaths in new york city during his heinous murder spree this madman is extracting the bones of his victims his sheer brutality has the residents of the big apple in panic mode who is this twisted psycho who's abducted a housewife in broad daylight only to dispose of her lifeless body alongside a lake in prospect park nailed the boneless remains of a nameless drifter to the underside of a boardwalk at Rockaway Beach, allowed the gutted corpse of a single parent to wash ashore under the Brooklyn Bridge, and has had the audacity to leave the desecrated body of the Magnolia T. heiress rotting atop trash at one of the city's sanitation dumps. NYPD's top cop, Homicide Commander John W. Driscoll, has never witnessed such savagery. Hammered daily by the district attorney, the mayor, and the police commissioner, the lieutenant, who's battling his own inner demons, must use every resource available to put an end to the killings. In a race against time, Driscoll, aided by Sergeant Alligante and Detective Cedric Tomlinson, sets out on a rollercoaster of an investigation to first identify the villainous fiend and then put an end to his butchering. Grab Bone Thief by Thomas O'Callaghan now.